Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Brant Bosterman. Uh, those who are uh, who have expressed interest in this episode, a lot of people have reached out expressing how excited they were that I was having uh, Dr. Bosterman back on. Um, he is the author of a very, very uh, awesome book uh, entitled The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox an interpretation and refinement of the theological apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. Now, if you're not big into apologetics, but you're, you know, you're interested in some of the things that, uh, that I talk about on this show, uh, you do know that we place a great emphasis upon apologetic methodology, presuppositionalism more specifically. So if you're interested in presuppositional apologetics, transcendental argumentation, and the doctrine of the Trinity and how it relates to all of those things, uh, you are in for a treat. This is my second time having uh, Dr. Bosterman on. Um, I had him on a while back uh, when the YouTube channel was pretty small and uh, we've grown a lot since then. And so I really wanted to uh, expose people to the work of Dr. Bosterman uh, who perhaps have never heard of him. And since uh, the channel has grown a little bit, hopefully uh, we can give uh, his book a little bit more exposure. Um, it's a tough read at times, but terribly fascinating, especially if you're interested in presuppositionalism and the philosophical problem of the one and the many and how uh, how all these things work together. Um, Dr. Bosterman will also be taking questions. If you have any questions at the back end like we normally do, you can send them in and preface your question with the letter Q or the word question so I can differentiate it from uh, the rest of the comments. All right. Well, without further ado, we're going to jump right in and I'd like to welcome Dr. Brant Bosterman on the screen with me. How are you doing, brother? Well, thanks for having me, Eli. Well, thanks for agreeing to come on. Uh, to be perfectly honest, um, the last discussion we had, which was, uh, it was your first appearance on a YouTube channel in a long time, and it ended up being like a two-hour discussion. Is that correct? Sure did, man. I came prepared tonight. Yes, that's right. So so when I invited uh, Dr. Bosterman on, uh, he asked me if I can get some questions prepared so that we can kind of be somewhere in the ballpark of like the direction that we wanted the conversation to go. And I've been so busy that I haven't I wasn't able to do that. But he's prepared uh, some some talking points that I think you guys will find uh, very, very fascinating, uh, educating and um definitely will be very thought provoking. So why don't you tell folks a little bit about um, who you are and what you do? Well, I am, uh, I'm a pastor. So I've been ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America since 2012 and um, church planted in 2013. Um, and I did that shortly after I completed my PhD thesis. So it was literally uh, April of 2013 that I gave my oral defense. And it was May of 2013 that we were gathering a church plant uh, full mm. of full of folks, and so it was kind of a whirlwind. Went straight into the ministry. Um, shortly thereafter, I think in 2014 or 15, I published my book. You asked me to have a copy. I'm not that vain, but uh, but here it is. And uh, yeah, I, I don't even remember the exact uh, publication date. But mm. um, since then, yeah, I've been preaching. I've been uh, on and off adjunct. Uh, you know, professoring, if, if you will, in, in uh, philosophy courses, logic, uh, intro to philosophy, things like that. And um, when I get spare time, writing, but progress is slow. So, uh, yeah. The keyword there is when you get spare time. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. 
Now, now, folks might find it interesting. Uh, I, I kind of rushed here and just got here at the last second from my youth group. Uh, I had a pretty long day. Been up since four thirty in the morning, and um, I'm a full time teacher, so I was working and doing things in the afternoon. So I just sat down here and I was looking frantically for uh, for uh, Dr. Bosterman's book, and I was like, I don't know where I put the book, and so. Um, Brad, why don't you uh, tell folks why you have your book accessible, uh, especially given where you are? Why don't you tell folks where you are right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's that, that's a, a good question. So I've been going to the same cafe house for over a decade. And so I have, in the course of time, uh, really gotten to know the management. In the course of time, uh, the, the owner uh, received Christ um, on a, a Good Friday. But, Excellent. Right before a Good Friday service. And I ended up, you know, being involved in uh, performing the wedding for him and his wife. And uh, so they eventually just gave me a key to this place. So I'm in this <laughs> Viennese Austrian themed cafe house where there's actually a plaque behind me with, with my name on it that <laughs> says here, Dr. Bosserman resides in quiet repose. And <laughs> They actually have my book right above it. So I didn't do any of that, but I, I suppose anytime I have a meeting here at the cafe house, I've got my book on hand. So that's, that's, awesome. that's why I had a copy. Yeah. He said that there were, there was a shrine uh, that was dedicated mm -hmm. to, I was like, where a shrine? Are you some pagan uh, temple or something? <laughs> it's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. That's how it is. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Well, yeah. um, let's let's jump right into the main topic. Um, again, folks who um, have expressed interest in this topic, I would imagine they have some background uh, in the topic. But why don't we kind of walk through some of the talking points that that you mentioned? Uh, you you have a point here. I have it in front of me. You you were interested in describing the one and the many problem in just a general sense. Uh, first, what is the what is the problem? Why is it a problem? And why is it even important to discuss in relation to like apologetics and things like that? Right. So the one many problem is is arguably one of, if not the most pervasive problems in philosophy, spanning really all of the sub-disciplines from what is real to how do we know to how should we live. And, you know, when we ask the question about the one and the many, I mean, all of us need a certain amount of consistency and regularity and reality to even exist. I mean, to, to make plans, we have to have an idea of what's coming. Right. At the same time, uh, in order for reality to be livable, there must be a refreshing and healthy sort of diversity just the same. And so, you know, let me put it this way, this dovetailing with what, what I must do pastorally, you know, when you meet someone who's depressed, yes, there, there are sometimes, you know, chemical bases for that, but there are also all sorts of other grounds of depression. And what you'll discover is that Reality being monotonous is a, a source of depression. Things not being refreshing, things not changing, not moving, not having sufficient variety. At the very same time, reality or life being chaotic with all sorts of violent turns and unexpected changes can also be hopelessly depressing. So in a certain respect, we're all trying to search out and find some sort of equilibrium between a refreshing um, variety and change, as well as a restful consistency. And this raises the question, you know, you might say this problem in its most practical form raises the question of 
what is ultimate reality? Is it even the sort of place where I should expect for there to be consistency? Or is it all just chaos? Mm -hmm. Is it even the sort of place where I should expect for there to be ever more refreshing changes, turns, and variations? Or is it a big ball of monotony? Um, so in one respect, it is, it's just, it, it's about as practical a question, you know, the one in the many. And can I relate these two things? How do I relate these things? Uh, but it really comes to bear, I think, classically in, in the history of philosophy at the very beginning with the pre-Socratics as to what is real. Okay. Is reality ultimately one and unitary and maybe even unchanging such that all change is illusory? Or is it ultimately something that's always changing, maybe even passing from contradiction to contradiction, such that unity is really just kind of a mirage? Mm -hmm. um, and so in the course of, of our talk, I, I will talk a lot about the pre-Socratics for a variety of reasons. And I, sure. I actually, I think, A, it's helpful sometimes to, to, dis to discuss this topic in uh, a more unfamiliar realm. Um, mm -hmm. And then on top of that, uh, I actually think in discussing the pre-Socratics, uh, you know, I know we have uh, the majority of your audience, Christian listeners. I think it will actually help us to shed um, some light on the Old Testament scriptures, okay. um, which were roughly contemporaneous with the, um, well, I mean, the latter part of it. So, okay. So that, that's excellent. So um, that would be good if you went through, because uh, you described what the one in the many problem is, maybe you can kind of define it more specifically. Like what is, what is the problem? What is it trying to solve? Right. Walk us through how yeah. some of the pre-Socratic philosophers tried to answer that question and yeah. then move into the old Testament you were going to make. And then eventually I want to culminate into how this applies to say, presuppositionalism. But before we get into that, I, I want to ask a question. Um, you know, a lot of people um, who do presuppositional apologetics, and they'll use something like the transcendental argument, you'll hear presuppositionalists say uh, things along the line that the triune God provides the necessary preconditions for knowledge or intelligible experience. You know, the triune God can account for uh, the one and the many. Many mm -hmm critics of presuppositionalism especially online think that this is a problem that was like it was like made up by presuppositionalists so that we can you know create this disease and claim to have the cure for it um without before you go into the presocratics why is that completely wrong-headed i mean is it the case that presuppositionalists just made up this issue it seems um you know i've had a classical apologist friend of mine he says no one never discusses this in the literature. You know, it's you just you presuppositionalists that bring it up. Why don't you speak to that? Yeah. Real quick? Well, I mean, I, it's almost unbelievable that someone would think of, you know, a such a a relatively small group of people, which are, you know, presuppositionalists. I mean, a niche group of people from the 20th century and after uh creating this problem only so they could solve it. I mean, first right. of all, I mean, this is a, a widely recognized problem in philosophy that predates, you know, presuppositionalists, even if uh, it isn't called by that name. Sure. Um, but, but so, I mean, so it's, it's just, it's frankly unbelievable to hear that, that folks would speak that way. Um, I, Edu I can educated people. I've heard uh, the, actually the person who told me this, I, I won't mention their name, but yeah. this person is a PhD, uh, yeah. does apologetics and thinks, yeah, hey, no one talks about this sort of thing. It's not that important. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so I don't know who said it, and I don't know how or in what context they said it, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I can only say that I find it baffling that somebody would say it who was well acquainted with philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it comes to the problem, I mean, just to discuss it more broadly than just, you know, what is real, um, it, it really, it, it comes to bear on, you know, virtually uh, every aspect of philosophy. Um, you know, one form in which the question has been expressed is how do universals relate to particulars? Mm -hmm. We both know that when I'm, you know, recalling a dog, I'm not uh, actually bringing a, a, a tangible dog into my mind. That's not what's happening. Um, I have some sort of concept of a dog, and it's not even just the physical outline of the dog, although that might be evoked in my mind as well. But it's also all sorts of characteristics that just literally can't be pictured, like animal. Animal being, you know, a genus is not, uh, it's not a specific thing. Um, and, and so there are, there are rationally th things about that dog in my mind that, that differs from a dog in reality. And sure. so, you know, one expression of, you know, the, the one many problem is how do universals, you know, universal forms um, relate to material reality? Do they relate to material reality? Is, is that concept of dog in my mind, you know, strictly artificial, a creation of my own subjective mind? Or does it have independent reality? If so, mm -hmm. how does it come to express itself in a material thing? Here again, we have the issue of the one and the many. We have a universal, um, a, a, an idea of dog, you might say, which somehow can apply to truly a, a multitude of specific animals that are dogs. And, uh, you know, how, how does that come to be? How is that possible? Obviously, ideas and, you know, physical reality are very different things. Sure. You know, so, so what... what what gives me the assurance that my idea of dog is uh, true to the reality mm -hmm. that it's intended to describe? Which okay. came first, the idea or the particular? You know, those are the sorts of questions among so many others that arise when we we talk about the one many problem. Uh, so, so, yeah. so when you're talking about dog, mm -hmm. animal, you're mm -hmm. you're in essence talking about an abstraction, right? There, yeah. There's, so there's there's no such thing as like. Like there's a dog, a particular physical dog, but the concept of dog is this abstraction. So you have this universal concept and there are these individual particular dogs. And we're asking the question, which came first? What is more ultimate in reality? This abstract mm -hmm. universal or these individual particulars? Is that is that what you're asking? Absolutely, absolutely. And then you might say, which one gives rise to the other? Uh, did I just form the idea of dog because I saw many four-footed creatures who, you know, roughly the same size and had certain, you know, attributes that were the same. And, and I created that artificial category such that that's all that it is. It's just a name that I've given to things that, uh, you know, I've arbitrarily grouped together. Or is there an actual essence of dog that limits the possible ways that any dog could be? In which case, there's a sort of logical priority to the to the universal or concept that is somehow you know defining and determining what every dog ever ever will be or or, or may or may not be. So, so that's that's another permutation of the problem. I mean, it arises in ethics as well. Are there universal ethical obligations that come to bear on everybody, or all ethics, you know, in all you know moral systems? 
uh, relative, uh, you know, the products of, you know, societal, um, you know, needs and, and, and differences. Um, you know, once again, we have the question, is there one right or are there many, um, you know, and, and, and what is the source of, you know, our, our ethical um, convictions? Sure. And, and you, you know, it comes into politics, you know, what has priority, the whole of society? I mean, this is right in our face with all things. I think last time we met, we were actually talking about coronavirus restrictions I mentioned in passing. I mean, we're still in it. So, so. so. <laughs> we're supposed to be gone by the summer. Everyone. That's right. That's right. You know, society, an artificial creation of, of a, a conglomeration of individuals or are individuals the, the product of a society such that, you know, we could have no, you know, self-conception without the, the selves who birth us and things like that. So the one many problem is, uh, again, it's a pervasive problem. It, it comes to bear in every, every realm of philosophy, from political philosophy to ethics to epistemology. Now, would it only be a problem, though, if the person asking this question presupposes the reality of universals. So you have folks like nominalists, uh, someone, you know, you know, we're debating, you know, what's more ultimate, the universal or particular and the nominalists yeah. just sitting over there and me like, you guys are weird. You know, these are just right. names we, we, we apply to these things that are, they're not actually these universal uh, categories. How would you speak to the, to the nominalist? Sure. So, so the nominalist has taken one side of, of, of the one many problem. They haven't you know, discarded it by any means. They've taken their stand on the side of the many. And then, you know, one has to answer the question, if everything is fundamentally individual and diverse, mm -hmm. um, there, there are no essences that things share in common. Where did we ever get the idea? Um, where did we ever get the idea to name things as generalities? Why, why isn't all of reality, um, why isn't our language like all of reality, an infinite number of words that only have one application and one correspondence? Mm -hmm. And, you know, but we're going to talk about these things actually in the course of discussing um, the Socratics, but maybe okay. we do jump to the Trinity and uh, the sense in which we bring it to bear as, sure. you know, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, so real quick. Who were the, the pre-Socratics for someone who's just popping in and be like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Who were the pre-Socratics and what questions were they asking? And then maybe you can kind of walk us through how the pre-Socratics dealt with this issue of what was more metaphysically ultimate, unity or mm -hmm. plurality. And I really want to eventually, um, when we get into more of the, the, the apologetic application, maybe you can clearly define the problem with taking metaphys the metaphysical ultimate reality as primarily unity mm -hmm. and taking metaphysical reality as primarily many. So when you, when you go from one extreme to the other, why does that, I'm saying this early and we can talk about it later, but why does that undermine the preconditions of intelligibility? And maybe we've got to talk about how the Trinity answers that. So, so that's where I want to go. My, my questions are kind of ill-formed right now, but why don't you walk, mm -hmm. who, is the, who are the pre-Socratics and what questions were they asking? And, and perhaps you can kind of unfold that for us. Right. So the pre-Socratics are philosophers uh, roughly contemporaneous with uh, the prophet Jeremiah. So uh, we'd be talking uh, 6th century uh, BC, um, 7th, 6th century BC. And they are primarily living in, uh, you know, modern day Turkey. Uh, but um, at the time, Ionia, um, uh, 
Milesis in particular, uh, which is close to, to Ephesus and in, okay. in, in roughly that region. And, um, you know, and then the, the other center of it would be, you know, in, in modern day Italy and, you know, arising from them as if a synthesis <laughs> are the, you know, the, the great Socratic philosophers. And there are some Greeks in that time period. Is, I mean, really, Ionia is, is Greek at this point. But, um, of course, the great schools of philosophy of Plato and Aristotle are, well, they're the Socratic philosophers, uh, Socrates being, you know, the philosophical father of, of Plato and Plato of Aristotle. So that's who these folks are. And, and they're, they're dealing with these, these questions about unity and diversity in the one and the many, um, okay. almost primarily. Okay, mm -hmm. so then they're asking, okay, so if they're asking what is metaphysically ultimate unity or plurality why don't you walk us through some mm -hmm. noted uh pre-socratic philosophers and what they how do they answer that question and and what's wrong with their answer well okay so that's what we're going to do and, and i'm going to do one thing first though okay but i want to say about this whole question is that uh the challenging thing about discussing ultimate matters is that we all already have an answer to these questions Mm -hmm. um, even before we try to get better answers to these questions, we all begin with a conception of uh, ourselves and the world around us um, as being, in certain respects, uh, one and in certain respects, many. We're, we're, to even raise the question, we're already coming with an experience and with an idea about how we'd, we'd even begin to, to, to investigate um, whether reality was more the one or the other, or what is that principle which, hold, which holds to disparate things like unity and diversity together. And that's one, of, one really challenging thing for people when we talk about this, when we talk about our ultimate commitments. And when we talk about the Trinity, and, I, and I'm going to say this from the get-go, because uh, this is important uh, for us as we, as we go into investigating the pre-Socratic answers to this question, we have to be clear in our, our own minds as Christians that we already have a specific answer right. to these questions. Um, and so here's what we, we mean when we talk about the Trinity as um, the absolute one and many. Um, every definition that we know, everything that we know, uh, we know with certain contrasts and parameters and differentiations in it and around it. Um, try to define something without reference to you know a multiplicity of words and concepts well part of what we're saying when we say that the trinity uh father son and holy spirit are the sol solution to the one and the many is that god has his own uh relationships and contrasts in himself in the life of the father the son and the holy spirit this means that God is not subject to the problem of the one and the many as we experience it. God does not live in time such that the freshness and the, um, uh, the life of the Trinity is supplied by his collision with something outside of himself or his victory over something outside of himself. All of his life and definition is in and through himself. Um, this is what the Trinity points us to, that one divine being is three co-eternal persons. Uh, their unity is so deep and, and, and uh, profound that it is a unity of, of one and the very same being, that they share one will together. And yet, 
uh, they are three distinct persons who give perfect expression to that divine being in one another. Mm -hmm. um, God, therefore, needs nothing outside of himself to unify himself. He has nothing outside of himself that he that he needs to look at or contrast with um, to have definition and life in himself. And so in that respect, we speak of God as the absolute. He's perfectly self-sufficient and wonderfully in a way that we can know him truly, but never exhaustively. Mm. This is what Cal you see what yeah. you're touching on uh, both the aseity of God mm -hmm. and, the That's in, right. and the incomprehensibility of God. That's right. Um, and it's important. So we're saying incomprehensible, but we're not saying that he's indescribable or inapprehensible. Mm. Um, Calvin makes the point that unless we know God as Trinity, you know, nothing but the name of God flutters about in our brain. Sorry. Because, you know, so, so frequently in human history, God has been defined just negatively. He's just not, he's not like this world. And when he's so defined, um, you know, the, He's also unpredictable for the very same reason as to what we can expect for, from him. And of course, you know, in Islam, assurance of salvation, when you just have a one God with no personal relationship, love, faithfulness, definition in himself, um, he, he, he becomes an arbitrary sort of a will. And your capacity to be assured of salvation um, correlates with the ultimate unknowability of God. Um so, so, so that's what we're getting at is that God is absolutely self-sufficient and in a way that uh, to us as persons, um, we can know him meaningfully. And um, to call him the solution to the one of many problem is A, to say he's not subject to it in the way we are. He doesn't okay. have an unknown future in front of him, which is one of the great problems. Um, nor does he have a... Uh, uh, any sort of subjection to any sort of power above himself. And this renders him the solution to the one in the many problem. And this might sound strange in an ethical way. Okay. What this, what this means is all unity and diversity that we have in this reality around us was created by the Trinity. The reason we have unity and diversity on a created level is because all of creation reveals the God in whom those two things are equally ultimate. This means that we're first of all taught to never try to find some unitary source of everything else within the creation that's the source of all other parts of the creation. That would be to give unity ultimacy. Nor are we ever to look at creation as uh, comprised of such unique and individual parts that the only sort of unity in it is uh, an artificial, you know, uh, subjective, you know, product. No, there's real unity and diversity in this reality. And if we want to navigate it in such a way that we can find both a sort of restful consistency and refreshing diversity, we have to listen to the one who made it and we have to, to, to follow his direction through it. That's our solution to the one many problem. It's not us finding in created categories, you know, mm -hmm. The one thing that explains everything else, the only one who knows and understands and perfectly comprehends everything else is the absolutely self-sufficient God who knows it just by knowing himself. And that's the important element uh, within the Christian worldview of revelation, right? Independent right. of revelation. And if you were to think, if people were to think in terms of like um, 
platonic categories of say like you have the particulars and the universals um you know these kind of uh, I, the ideal realm what connects the ideal realm to the particular realm how can we have access to that without the thread of a revelation that's so, right that's right and so exactly what we have is we have you know a genesis one account that says god created you know the various creatures according to their kind and apparently there is some sort of ideal or universal which they share in common that um resides in the mind of god and he as the absolute one in the many has the power and the prerogative to to produce a one in many that is subject to him in every way hmm. and if we want to navigate that we need to carry on in submission to him. And he speaks to us in a variety of ways. He, you know, first off, we should note that on this view, all of reality reveals God absolutely uh, immediately. Just as soon as anything appears itself, it immediately testifies to God because it is a unity of one and many right then and there. And the only reason we don't intuitively give credit to the God who resides above creature cre created universals and created particulars is because we have been living our lives suppressing the truth of god and unrighteousness and this is a supremely mm. uh you know uh subversive claim which shouldn't surprise us because all of the answers to the one many problem have really subversive claims as we're going to see in a moment but mm. but what we're saying as christians is that it's not just that we could look at creation and reason our way to god it's that we are always uh, in the very atmosphere of divine revelation. In him, we live and move and have our being. And as we see this sort of equilibrium in our experience, that there's sufficient unity and sufficient diversity to get about in the world and to make sense of things that all, it's always immediately bearing witness to the God who resides above them both. And then we also have you know, verbal revelation. We had it from the very beginning. Um, you know, Adam and Eve had that verbal rev revelation guiding them uh, for how they should live and how they could um, arrive at, at places of deeper and more meaningful, um, you know, unity and diversity as, well, take Adam and Eve. He begins as an individual. His bride is created from his side and they are to be one flesh together um, as they carry on in submission and obedience to God, a more profound sort of existence than uh, the relatively unitary existence that Adam had prior to his wife. And it would get more profound when they had children and there would be unity and diversity in society. So, right. yeah. There, okay. So when you mention Adam and Eve, I'm sure uh, a lot, of, I've been asked this question a lot is that if the triune God is needed to justify knowledge. So like we assume folks who are listening have background mm -hmm. on the transcendental argument and how we argue that the Christian God uh, who supplies these foundations for unity and, and diversity, how, how could knowledge ever be justified without knowledge of the Trinity? So like, yeah. did God reveal himself as a Trinity in the garden? What about people, um, you know, pagan nations when they were doing philosophy, were they never in a position to justify knowledge because they didn't have a concept of the Trinity? How would you how would you address that question? I'm sure a lot of people have asked it. Yeah, that, that question is is universally birthed from the idea that uh, we're treating the Trinity as some sort of deductive premise hmm. without which you can't you know arrive at certain conclusions. I, I, that's a, just a fundamentally problematic way to think about knowledge or knowing something or knowing someone at all. 
Um, the way I tend to describe it is, yes, we need the Trinity to justify knowledge. We, we don't need uh, to necessarily acknowledge the Trinity as a Trinity to justify knowledge at every point in redemptive history. Uh, Part of the, the whole matter of the one in the many problem is, you know, the fact is somehow every one of us as individuals and as a human race, we develop through time. Um, our understanding of the same thing can develop. And it doesn't mean that we didn't know it at the beginning because it develops into something much more profound at the end. And so what we the Trinity is that Adam and Eve knew the Trinity, knew the triune God, um, even though at that point, uh, the, the development of their language and conception and understanding was not in a place to articulate their uh, tacit knowledge of the Trinity as exactly that, him being triune. And I just compare it to the children's knowledge of their parents. You know, do, do my kids know me? I mean, what kind of fool would say they didn't? Of course they know me. But in the course of time, the way that they know me, my girls at 13 now, is something very different than how they knew me uh, when they were infants. The fact of the matter is, is that um, they didn't have words for hands. They didn't have words for uh, a voice. Um, whatever sort of knowledge they had of those sorts of things, <laughs> it, it wasn't the sort of th thing that they could articulate it, um, maybe even differentiate it. But did they know that their dad had hands and had a voice? Did they know their dad's hands? And did they know their dad's mm -hmm. voice? They surely did in some infantile sense appropriate to their age. And we'd say something similar about Adam and Eve. But I think it, I, I do fear if I go on like this, we will never get to the pre-Socratics. Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I, what I want to mention is the, the subversive story that we're going to tell as Christians is that the only reason why people do not immediately acknowledge this God who is the supreme source of unity and diversity in all of our experience is because we're sinners. And we chose in the fall to quit reasoning and thinking about ourselves in the world in terms of divine guidance. What we chose to do when we, we ate the fruit and we, we elected to be, as it were, uh, you know, our own gods in pursuit of our own deity, is we began to treat ourselves as the ultimate standard. Sure. And this is a fundamentally corrupt, fundamentally confused, and wrong-headed way to go at life and reality. You could say it's like we chose to be drunk. We drank some alcohol. And, and well, this is, you know, 2 Timothy 2.25 says, you know, repentant, you know, pray that God may grant them repentance. They may come back to their senses. It really, it really says become sober. Okay. Um, we elected to do something insane. We know ourselves not to be ultimate. There's nothing more obvious than that. We know ourselves to have not created ourselves. Nothing could be more obvious than that, which is as much as to say that we know ourselves to be utterly dependent, not just on some other, but on some other wiser and greater than ourselves. We know this immediately. Every thought we think already presupposes that. And the only reason we don't admit that is because we're angry at the Lord. And, um, that's a very subversive thing to tell the world. That's the condition that we're in. But you'd say that the proof of it is that we can never justify our knowledge when we try to navigate the world, much less actually obtain the sort of harmony that we're all after. And then we all have some idea of, even though it's never manifested itself. Sure. We're all trying to get somewhere better. You know, where did we get the idea of a better harmony 
of the one in many than the one we currently exist in. I, I like what you said. You affirmed the biblical truth that uh, all men know God and we are angry with him, right? We're suppressing mm -hmm. our sin. Uh, but you didn't stop there because I would know that unbelievers who are listening, they'd be like, well, Brant, that's a nice claim. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you qualified it with, but we know this because, right? When you operate on the assumption of not the triune God, you lack those, uh, the ability to justify, you know, A, B, and C. So it's not just an authority claim. It's an authority claim that you believe can actually be justified and demonstrated uh, as we kind of uh, interact with the unbeliever and kind of uh, internally critique and draw out that knowledge of God that we were saying is, is present in all men. Right. And, you know, it's, it's just funny when you really think about it. Why isn't it? immediately obvious that it's just as subversive a claim to go about telling people that, you know, if you're ever going to find truth, you're going to have to do it on your own using your own rational faculties as totally unguided by any divine authority or, or, or source of, of guidance. Like, why, why is that obvious? Why is that the neutral or natural position? I maintain sure. it's not neutral or natural. At all. It's, it's filled with so many assumptions. And it's, it's just as much asserting a story about you and I and what we are, and what we should expect to be able to do. So we both have these presuppositions. I just simply, you know, maintain, you know, what Proverbs eight thirty six that when we reject God from the beginning, we reject wisdom from the beginning. It says that he who sins against me injures himself, and all those who hate me love death. Hmm. Um, we end up in confusion. And so the last thing I'll just say about the one and the many and the solvency of the Trinity is that, of course. Uh, most importantly, is that the only way out of this confusion and this drunken stupor in which we are is that um, there is a God who is one in three, such that the second person of the Trinity can assume human flesh, you know, satisfy God's justice, giving him the obedience of which we've deprived him, die the, the death that we deserve, the eternal infinite wrath of God, and do so in a way that only the God-man could in a finite lapse of time. And that the third person of the Trinity would open our hearts and regenerate our, our very souls so that we can begin uh, to um, walk on the right course again and uh, enjoy communion and fellowship with God. And so obviously the, the Trinity comes in at the front end and the back end, but let's, let's jump into uh, the pre-Socratics. So generally. Yeah, let, yeah, yeah. Let, let's do that. Uh, just once again, folks, uh, I know there are a bunch of people watching now um, who are just popping in. I'm speaking with Grant Bosterman, Dr. Bosterman. He is the author of, um, the, uh, I just had it, the title, your title, you see, it was originally a dissertation. It was Trinity and the vindication of Christian paradox and inter an interpretation and refinement of the theological apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. So that's, that's who we're speaking with. We're about to jump into the pre-Socratics. And so hopefully, uh, you guys are, you have your seatbelts on and we're, we're moving along, uh, going through a bunch of stuff here that I think is going to be super helpful. Um, if you guys are finding this conversation um, interesting, uh, be sure to like, uh, subscribe if you haven't, and share the video for crying out loud. Let other people know about uh, Dr. Bosterman's work, uh, especially his book. And uh, um, and yeah, so let's jump in. So um, let's talk a little bit about the pre-Socratics. And don't worry, Corey, I see that awesome and super generous super chat. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. We'll be getting to questions and definitely uh, super chats uh, at the back end of the episode. But thank you so much. Go for it, uh, Dr. Bosterman. Good. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how far we can get. I, I will begin with Thales, who is uh, generally regarded to be the first philosopher 
um, surely within the Greek context. Um, well, Thales advances a theory that ultimate reality um, is water. All of reality is really water. Now, this is, again, you know, a subversive claim, and it, it implicitly comes as a critique of the way that so many of us like to think about reality. We tend to think of the real, you might say, as uh, that which is stable and enduring. And so, you know, so I think sometimes uh, the naive, you know, answer to, to a philosophical question, what's real, is someone to pick up something solid and be like, well, this is real. You know, I, I can touch it and, it, you know, here it is. It's tangible and all of those things. And um, you, you think about it and, and you ask, you know, why, what would compel someone like Thales to the conclusion that, that reality is ultimately fluid? And um, what, it, what it requires, presumably, is someone taking a deeper look at everything than just your immediate experience. So you have a person who's beginning like Adam autonomously after the fall with his experience and saying, yet upon investigation... Uh, my conclusions about what is ultimately real must change. And this is because, in fact, when you look at reality, um, everything changes. Things break, things erode, they crumble, rivers redirect, things grow. And you ask yourself, you know, what then is the ultimate character of reality? It's, it's far less like a rock, says Thales, which would be, you know, what are the the four classical elements, you know, earth and, you know, air and, and fire and water. Okay. And it's much more like water an ever fluid something. And, you know, you also, you know, consider you had asked earlier, um, you know, why do we even suppose there are universals? Why do you suppose there even, you know, there is unity in reality? Well, okay. in order for things to interact, to collide, to, um, to have any sort of interaction, it, it, it appears they must have something in common. That's how it looks when you look at it, you know, from just the mere experience of man reasoning under the sun. You know, why is it that water can erode a rock? Well, they're both physical and water can ex exert a force on that rock. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the ball goes into the court of a pure nominalist to say, you know, why wouldn't we say that these things all share a common proper property of physicality? Mm -hmm. And these these pre-Socratics really are working in a world where the idea that ultimate reality is physical, uh, it's one of the more immediate sorts of conclusions one might draw simply based on uh, experience, unreflective, and then even into deeper points of reflection. And, you know, you might ask other questions. Why did he come up with this, this idea? I mean, water is one of the, you know, elements that in nature we can actually watch transition Sure. From a liquid state to a solid state to a, a you know, a, to a vaporous state. Um, and not only that, but you, you, there are other curiosities. I mean, if you have the conception that clouds are, you know, rain or, or water and contain water, and then you note that they, you know, lightning bolts proceed from them, you might say by empirical observation that water somehow, you know, the permutation of it is, uh, you know, just that fire. And you might see a tree get caught on fire from that. Sure. Where you might observe that, you know, water comes out of especially, you know, living bodies, living agents. And, you know, this worldview that, that all is um, in fluid motion, it carries with it an implicit ethic just the same. Um, if this is the case, then you would leave going, uh, I should not grow too attached to anything. Everything's changing. 
Mm-hmm. By the same right, you'd probably leave saying, I, I actually shouldn't worry too much about losing anything because it will be back again. Sure. And so, you know, we have a guy trying to explain what is the ultimate reality that, that I can count on. And his conclusion is the thing that doesn't change is change itself. Change, change is always happening. That's what you can count on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very this worldly perspective. Sure. And you could say change itself is a one which gives rise to all of the diversity around us. And in fact, the diversity that we see um, is not more real than change itself or the fluid nature of reality. Hmm. You follow me there, Eli? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm familiar with. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Here's here's the thing with Thales. Um, it's very easy as kind of modern thinkers to to look at Thales, who said all is water, and be like, well, that's dumb. Well, he was actually onto something, even though we don't agree with his conclusion. He's really grappling with, uh, you know, these kind of deep metaphysical questions based upon his observation and and the limited knowledge that he had. So um, I'm, I'm following you. So so um, water seems to be kind of insufficient, as you see um, some other philosophers come along the line and start suggesting other things. Um, so, so so why don't we kind of uh, go through a couple of other options? Thaley said all is water, and uh, that was a little problematic. Uh, what were some other things that, that folks were saying? If I may, Eli, I, I, I might even suggest a slightly more complex course in saying... Sure. You know, and I kind of want to actually revive a conception of presuppositionalism in relation to philosophy as all we do is we we point out their presuppositions are wrong and move on. Quite to the contrary, uh, we have already asserted that in our worldview, absolutely everything reveals God indirectly. Everything testifies to the true God. And the same is true of of mistaken philosophies. In fact, even as, as, as insane as it sounds to say that, you know, all is water you know, current atomic theory has, you know, uh, uh, electrons constantly moving. In fact, their definition is more like a mathematical function, mm. a fluid constant function. You know, to say that energy is what matter is, it, it isn't that far from what we're talking about. And I'm just saying there really isn't anything new under the sun. And, and there's a sense in which that's false, but one in which it's true. And so let me get, get at this. There's actually some solid biblical agreement with Thales that we need to take into account. Um, the earth and created reality um, under the heavens is especially fluid. In fact, when it's first made, um, it, what do we read? We read in Genesis 1, 1 through 2 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Mm. Um, the idea that the world in which we live is especially fluid um, in time is at, at the very essence of, 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 of what we believe about the creation in contrast to the Creator. Um, and notably, from the very beginning, there is a part of this reality that God's made that um, is full, apparently luminescent, and uh, not without form. Heaven is is a, a contrast, and I would argue Genesis one when we're talking about the the heavens in which the angelic beings and you know are, and which God is in a more um, sure. a direct sense than on the earth. I, I could go into reasons why, but I won't here. Sure, sure, sure. But the contrasting reality in which we find ourselves is in in regular change and constant motion, and um, so in that respect. Uh, Thales wasn't insane. 
<laughs> where, where he went wrong is supposing that that reality is or could be sufficient to itself. The insight that, you know, all things change is, is only, you know, meaningful against some absolute. We wouldn't even be able to gauge change without there being some sort of absolute. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to get at here is that, you know, Thales assigning ultimate reality um, to change itself and calling that the one thing that explains everything else, we're going to say that is Thales having an undeniable knowledge of the I am, the God who absolutely mm. is, the one who brings unity to everything else. And frankly, Thales had eternity in his heart, just like Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. Yeah. And the closest he felt like he could get to that as an autonomous man was to name that one thing which is eternal, which is change. And it's mm. it's it's a pretty sad you know solution to uh, our longing and desire for eternity, and you know Vintel had this phrase you know he'll, or this um, aphorism I don't know he he describes man this way he says humanity fallen humanity is is and I'm paraphrasing is like a man made of water standing in a glass of water trying to climb out on a ladder made of of water, <laughs> you know. Thales calling change the one thing that, that, that really is, is the man in the glass of water trying to step out of that change and, 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 and have something that endures. And all he has is, is the name of, of change itself. Mm. And that's the sad and hopeless position in which men are. Um, because here's the thing, pure change... <laughs> is actually unchanging monotony. Mm. If everything that is has already been and everything that, you know, is will be again, um, what you're actually in is a, is a very depressing place. This is where Ecclesiastes is in chapter 1, 5 to 9, where it says, you know, the sun rises and sets. It hastens to its place and, and there um, it, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and toward the north. The wind continues swirling long, and on its circular course, the wind returns. And he says, all things are wearisome. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has uh, been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Sure. You know, this is what we, we mean when we talk about the self-defeating sorts of conclusions. And here we're not talking about an, an epistemic self-defeat, but we are talking about a very practical one. That's a depressing place to be. Mm -hmm. Things aren't going anywhere. Uh, things are just always recycling. So real change, we would say to Thales, you know, uh, nice try, but real change actually requires a purpose. It requires a teleology that actually leaves things behind and is going somewhere definite. That's what real change looks like. And the only one who could ever tell us that any such real change existed that we were going somewhere that left the past behind would be the triune God who resides above time, hmm. who has real life and meaning and definition in himself. He's a one and a many, um, and, and therefore uh, can be the director and our, our sure guide in time. Hmm. So that's where we want to look at these things. And we want to say, you know, they're, they're getting at something every time. They have to be because this is God's creation. We can't even talk about it without getting at something true. So we're always taking philosophies, man, until says, and setting them right side up. Nice. Um, now, I'm just going to say one more thing here, you know, be, just to really 
you know, delve into the depths of, you know, honestly, how much Thales got right. Okay. Um, you know, life it really is best described um, as fluid in scripture. Um, you know, water is one of the only elements that, you know, in nature is naturally moving all the time, in the whether it be the sea or whether it be rivers and things like that. Sure. And so therefore we have a phrase in the Bible, we, we talks about living water frequently. And when it talks about man in the sacrificial system, you know, what, what we have to offer to God as, uh, you know, expressive of our life is blood. You know, you think about people walking around, you know, the cadence and the rhythm with which we move, the fluidity of our movements is much more like water than it is like a rock. Sure. And so what does the scripture say? It says that the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by it is uh, the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Um, we we would do well to understand what a profound insight this is, and I think you know the Bible, being as it was in in, in a world uh, where such elemental theory was prominent, we would actually say it, it has to correct, it, it, you know, has to, to the, the 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 biblical system is actually what gives the true meaning to that ele elemental theory. And um, what do we do with that life? Hmm. That life doesn't keep cycling. That life has an end to which it must be brought in God's house, God's temple, um, uh, where it will be accepted or rejected. It is going somewhere. And that living water isn't just going back into a cycle of you know, condensation and all of these things. That living water has an end and a purpose to bring life to living things. And so I, I would submit that Leviticus 17, 11 and what it says about blood being brought to a definite end is stated more directly and ethically in Ecclesiastes 12, that the conclusion when all has been said and heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment. Sure. Everything which is hidden, whether good or evil, uh, that is what everything is flowing to. Mm. And Thales very sadly uh, did not know that. So, so you, you would say, so Thales and uh, what are a couple of others? Uh, who, well, the, yeah. who is the person that said that all is fire, all is air? Are, yeah. are you saying all of these philosophers are touching on something that is true-ish, mm -hmm. but because of the suppression, because of That's right. uh, you know uh, all these things, they're not capturing the full picture. Well, they can't. It's not even just that they're not capturing the full picture, okay. but but they have an outrightly contradictory picture. Okay. It is a self-defeating picture. So this is, you know, the matter of self-deception of which we speak that, you know, in, in our actual thoughts, we can believe contradictions, uh, even though contradictions are not real. We can hold two beliefs, you know, that are at odds with one another. And that's what all of these philosophers are doing. They're, they're actually stealing from our worldview. They're mm -hmm. always taking from our worldview. It's borrowed capital. And it's, you know, uh, the, the, the biblical scriptures and divine guidance that, um, that that's the foundation. That is the thing. We're all standing on the world made by God. So all we can do is manipulate it if we're not willing to submit to him in it. Sure. And yet those, even those manipulations must still bring indirect, you know, uh, glory to God by providing deeper insights that when turned right side up are 
hmm. are well worth considering. So, well, let's let's go to the next one, because okay. you know the best critiques of all of the pre-Socratics are actually delivered by other pre-Socratics. They they are masterful at um, you know point out the contradictions in the uh, you know the problems with one another. And so we turn to Anaximander, who uh, was the pupil of um, Thales. And here's what he concluded. His, his theory was that ultimate reality is the boundless, what he called aperon. And there's a critique of Thales in this claim. Um, if Thales is going to say that everything is water, um, why would we say that water as we know it, the, the liquid substance, is the more apt definition of all of reality than rock? or than air, or than fire. If they're all water, how do you freeze the frame at what we think of as, you know, oceanic water and say, well, that's what it all is. Why isn't it all just any one of those? Why do you say it's all rock? That would be just as true um, because rock is just as fluid at the end of the day as water is. And, uh, you know, there's something just painfully arbitrary about this. And beyond being arbitrary, it appears that Anaximander also understood that these different states of, of matter contradict one another. Um, he understood that it isn't just that water, you know, smoothly transitions into being a solid and into being fire. Fire actually destroys water and if it's in greater abundance. And then water actually destroys fire if it's in greater abundance. Sure. These qualities are contraries. So here's what, what an Anaximander is saying. They have to be have some sameness because they interact. But that one thing, that sameness that they all have cannot be tied to any of the qualities, uh, specific qualities of each, because they can't conflict with one another. Therefore, there must be a stuff underneath all that we observe that holds it all together and does not in itself have to be defined by any of the qualities of the others. And he divided the qualities up into wet and cold, which is water, wet and warm, which is air, dry and cold, which is earth, and dry and hot, which is fire. Okay. The thing bearing all those qualities cannot itself be hot or never be cold. It cannot itself be dry or never be wet. You have to transcend those categories. That's right. And he understood that, you know, qualities themselves are, are you know, limitations of some sort. And therefore... It mustn't be any one of those qualities. Okay. And so that, you know, he's actually a very interesting figure because um, his theory of the boundless um, really, he expounds it. Well, we actually, we don't have so much of what these guys wrote, but we have some idea of what he held. And this idea of the boundless, this thing that precedes all qualities it really is the beginning of what you might think of as a negative theology. Okay. Negative theology is that God is just not like any of the limitations of the world round about us. About us. Um, go okay. ahead. Oh, well, that's different. Okay, so you're not talking about like apophatic theology, right? Like, sure, absolutely. Oh, yeah, okay. yes, right. absolutely. And 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 so his boundless, you could say, is uh, kind of the, the beginning of that sort of thinking. And he actually develops an intense cosmogony. Um, that essentially the boundless, and this, this all sounds so strange, somehow divides itself into two contrary expressions, one sphere of fire, 
around a great big ball of water. Mm. And then because the fire, you know, is over the water, it creates steam and it produces air. And then the things which are closer, you know, to the water um, itself, you know, pr produce earth as something that is, you know, dry, but not wet. And you, you end up with this big sort of drum-like disc, which is the earth in this theory. Um, then you have different rings of thickness of, of um, cloud. So it's so interesting that like someone, as they're thinking about this, they're developing these. It's just absolutely. It's fascinating. Well, and, and his theory about what the sun and the moon are and the stars is that these different layers of concentric circles of cloud, they have holes in them. And there's actually just a big hole in one of the, the, these layers of cloud, which you can see that Aboriginal fire through in a disc-like form. And that's what the sun is. It's just like a hole in the cloud. That's what all the stars are at different layers. Okay. Um, and then his theory, you know, he's also a proponent of, of, of evolution. He's the, you know, it's not a new theory, but uh, he had the belief that essentially sea creatures eventually birth land creatures and eventually birth man. And what's happening is this cycle. You begin with the boundless. It goes down into these different forms of material, then animals, then man. And there's going to be some sort of resolution back up at the top where everything goes back to being boundless, qualitativeless mm. reality, at least qualitativeless is in terms of any quality we know of. Sure. Sure. So, but you can see here what he's trying to do. He's trying to explain how there can be unity in this world that has such diversity between things like fire and water and earth and animals and, and, and uh, human creatures. And, so once again, we have to look at this, you know, from a biblical perspective and, and, and see where there's there's a sort of truth in this and where there's just a fundamental problem and disagreement that we're going to have to have. Um, we do have a conception of the boundless in our conception of God. Uh, God is unbounded by creation. And in that sense, he's not dependent on it. Nothing in creation is exactly like him. Um, he's rather self-contained. He's not creation-contained. Right. And uh, in that respect, we can talk about a God who, in the beginning, which has to mean before the beginning as we know it, there's this God who is unlike the creation um, in, in certain fundamental ways. We can talk about before time eternal in Titus 1-2. Just the same, we can talk about a God who is before space as we know it. And of course, that's deep in the Hebrew conception. Sure. When Solomon builds a house and says that even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Um, you know, it, that's interesting, you know, seeing as Anaxagoras is talking about these layer, levels of heaven and the sun is just that, that, that highest element of fire closest to the, you know, the Apiron shining through well we're saying even more than that he is beyond the sun itself beyond mm. all of these things and he's never ever to be confused with them um it, just the same you know our god reveals himself in judges 13 18 to manoah samson's father and says you know why do you ask my, my name my name is incomprehensible mm. and yet at the very same time this is so important a theophany the angel of the Lord is the one speaking that. Sure. We have a different kind of incomprehensible as Christians than non-Christians. 
Mm. What is incomprehensible to us is absolutely comprehended by God. And just the same, when we speak of God is incomprehensible, we don't mean he has no qualities whatsoever. We mean whatever qualities we ascribe to him, we're doing so analogically, knowing that they they must be different from the qualities that we see uh, here and there. And that's related to Van Til's conception of analogical thinking. Is that, is Mm -hmm. that connected? That's right. right. That's right. Absolutely. So here's the thing. We might say that Anaximander's boundless, his reality is both more and less boundless than the Trinity and in terrible ways at that (laughs) self-defeating ways at that. Okay. His totally boundless infinite state resists all definition. Hmm. And none, none at all. In fact, the only way we can give a definition is against bounded finite reality, which we experience here. That's what we mean when we talk about negative theology. And here's the thing. His boundless is so boundless and incomprehensible that his whole theory has the idea that it can realize contradictions. The boundless hmm. can become fire and water to contradictories. Mm. Um, it can express itself in its opposite. In fact, precisely because it's boundless, you might say, it realizes these contradictions. Forgive me for for hearing uh, Karl Barth's doctrine of the word of God in what I'm saying right now, but uh, <laughs> it's exactly that, you know, there's this, this word that, you know, it's constantly, you know, it's revealing itself and immediately its revelation is fossilized and you can't use it to limit God. It, it just, what this means though, then, um, is that, in fact, the boundless is, is really not boundless at all, you might say. It is actually totally dependent on instability, and it actually looks more like instability than anything else. We are in a different position as, as Trinitarians. We believe in the ontological trinity, the God not bounded by creation. He mm-hmm. is never finite. He is full of personal relationship in himself, and he doesn't mark out his boundlessness by uh, becoming his opposite ever. And it's it's rather that he has an immutable and infinite character in himself that is loving and faithful mm. that gives us all the peace in the world. And so we would just note at the very core, uh, <laughs> Anaximander... It's hard to remember all their names, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anaximander... Um, He really doesn't have any ground for claiming that he knows anything. Ultimate reality is a boundless something that can realize contradictions. Mm -hmm. And we would say that sort of boundless is a negative infinite. It is something that if it is true that that's what ultimate reality is, Mm -hmm. you really can't. It actually undermines your ability to know anything. Um, Knowledge, at least having some sort of, you know, uh, conception that we can rule certain things out of court as impossible. Um, how can you say of the boundless who realizes contradictions that anything is impossible? How can you say that you know that reality is in a cycle on its way back up to him? Mm-hmm. Um, these sorts of things uh, are unknowable when you accept that presupposition. So, okay. So our, now, now, unfortunately, we won't be able to go through all of the pre-Socratics because we're, no. we're at the top of the hour. Um, but again, I would imagine all of them are going to have similar issues. They're not going to be able to kind of ground 
uh, mm -hmm. this one in the many uh, issue. I, mm -hmm. I want to now make a transition because uh, there are a lot of questions coming in uh, that are apologetics related <laughs> and some of them philosophical. Um, Bummer. Yeah. I was ready to talk about so many pre-Socratics. No, I, I, I was way too prepared. This is that I teach a, a, a ancient I, I don't mind. So, I can listen yeah. to it mm -hmm. all night, but um, I, mm -hmm. I, here's what I want to do. I'm going to let people know too, because I, I know a lot of people um, want their specific questions answered that have some apologetic application more than kind of asking some of the, those more in, uh, interesting historical questions. Uh, sure. What I'm going to do is uh, in a couple of days, I'm actually going to um, cut out the questions and make that a separate video. So sure. you know, people can come and listen to this whole okay. thing with the questions mm -hmm. included, but I'll also release another video where it just addresses questions just for people who want to kind of jump ahead and get those things. But this historical discussion, I think, is so important because it shows that the problem, again, is not a, a, an invention ex nihilo by presuppositionalists who are trying to, you know, argue this point when they're using the transcendental argument. This is mm -hmm. this is a long and rich history that goes uh, way, way back. So, mm -hmm. so I, I want to kind of uh, hijack the discussion and, and ask a question that's related to uh, those who have been critical of presuppositionalism, transcendental argumentation, and our use uh, of the problem of the one and the many, suggesting that the Trinity solves this issue. Uh, so, mm -hmm. for example, Dr. Richard Howe, who is an um, awesome guy, by the way. Um, I love Dr. Howe. He's got some great stuff. Obviously, we come from a different perspective apologetically and philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, but in a discussion uh, on apologetic methodology, he was on with a number of apologists from different apologetic traditions. Uh, one of which was Dr. James White, who was defending the presuppositional perspective. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dr. White brought up the problem of the one and the many uh, mm -hmm. as a necessary kind of precondition for intelligible experience and knowledge. And Dr. Howe said that the problem of the one and the many has already been solved. And he suggested that Aristotle already solved the problem. Now, that's interesting because I know Dr. Howe is is Thomistic in his in his philosophical and the, uh, his philosophical orientation. And, and so I know Thomism has a very strong relationship with Aristotelianism and things like that. Are you familiar with the attempted solution of the one and the many from Aristotle? And if so, why does Aristotle fail to actually answer this problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, anyone who is acquainted with the history of philosophy would have some conception of what Aristotle's, you know, solution to the, to the one many problem is, um, you know, uh, wherein lies, you know, some of the problem problematic elements to it. I mean, so Aristotle has to posit a conception of matter that is uh, in, in many respects, like, uh, well, we just talked about Anaximander's uh, um, boundless. He has to, to to posit a sort of matter that unlies, underlies everything that is is close to nothing or non-being as, as anything possibly could be, which can actually receive any any of the various qualities that it uh, that it turns into. It has a, a, a passive potency to become these different mm. qualities. Um, the concept of something that is pure potentiality, um, unknowable, it's, it's, well, it's undefinable in itself. It doesn't have an amount. It doesn't have a number. It doesn't have, I mean, all of those are qualities that it could have. Uh, it doesn't have a size. That's also a quality that it could have. 
And then, you know, so that's like the bottom of, of Aristotle. That's where, you know, the source of manyness for Aristotle, you might say. It, it, at the highest end of unity in, in Aristotle's worldview is the, it's really an abstract ideal of, of thought thinking itself. And the stars are trying to be like that. They're semi-sentient beings. Their circular motion is, you know, the closest thing in visible form to, you know, what thought thinking itself would be like. Okay. And, you know, what you basically have Aristotle saying is that by the collision of these two unknowable things, pure, uh, pure impersonal reason and uh, immaterial, uh, almost nothing, that's how you produce the entire reality of everything from sentient beings to, to gods, to stars, to animals, you name it. Um, how you could conceive of that as the solution to the problem of the one and the many is uh, somewhat baffling. You know, for, for Aristotle, he's not even claiming that he can, you know, prove these things definitively. Uh, yeah. They're sort of, it's, it's like a man saying, my experience must be real. I'm starting there. My experience must must have truth, uh, a truth-bearing property to it. And moving out from there and saying, uh, what can validate my experience as I currently know it? And he's going to appeal to these two uh, deeply, well, frankly, esoteric things at the end of the day. Um, he can't tell you how or why those things ever came together. Um, he, he can't tell you if any being in all of reality knows how or why those things are together. There's, there's no being sufficient for that task in his worldview. Right. And so in a certain sense, you could say it's all provisional. It's all a best effort of a man doing the best that he can with what he has. It reeks of, of autonomy from the get-go. And uh, it begs for a solution as to what is responsible for all of this. And so in that respect, we'd go, no, I mean, it, it doesn't even... If you're if you're talking about a solution to the problem of the one and the many that breeds certainty, that's certainly not what an Aristotelian philosophy can do. Mm. Okay, all right. Thank you for that. Now, uh, because of limitations of time, I do want to kind of transition into some questions. There's a lot of them, and, and I want to make sure we get to some of them. So I do apologize that we weren't able to cover, which I'm sure you can give three, four hour lecture on, and I'd be happy to listen to all of it. <laughs> um, but um, I think people got a, a flavor of what the problem is, how some people have tried to kind of grapple with what is more ultimate and why it doesn't work. And that can have many permutations in terms of like how to apply that to modern uh, philosophical conceptions that try to kind of uh, understand unity on plurality. So um, so I think that if people want to go back and listen to that, I think that you can get a nice little lesson in history of, of this idea. Um, but let's move to the questions here, and perhaps it'll touch on some stuff that you've already and maybe take us in areas that perhaps uh, we haven't discussed but are interesting nonetheless. Is that okay? Sure. All right. Thank you so much, by the way. You've done excellent. I didn't expect you to not do excellent. Mm. Uh, it's just such a fascinating topic. But first, I'd like to say thank you to Corey, uh, for his $20 super chat. Thank you so much. That's uh, very generous. I very much appreciate it. Uh, but here's Corey's question. You say that the Holy Spirit is the infinitesimal unity through whom all created things are related. Who renders all things indefinitely divisible? Is the spirit 
the smallest metaphysical unit or only analogically so? Okay, so God renders all things uh, in indefinitely divisible and synthesizable, we would say as well. Um, so, so answer to the first part, um, is the spirit, spirit, spirit the smallest metaphysical unit? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the spirit is not himself a spatial being. So if you're using spot, well, at least not as, as regards space as we know it, sure. um, we could at, at best speak of there being a sort of analogical space when we speak of God. Um, and as it, as it is, of course, you know, the, the Lord himself uh, is contained by himself and he is infinitely contained by himself. And so I guess there's a sense in which, and, and I think I discussed this in the book, there's a sense in which we can speak of each person of the Trinity as infinitesimal uh, in, in themselves and, 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 in, and in the Trinity. But we wouldn't want it to ever confuse that with, with space as we know it, as if the Spirit were limited on his left and his right by, uh, you know, any, any physical created reality. Sure. All right. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, thank you, Corey. Scott Terry, thank you so much for your $20 super chat. Once again, very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Uh, here's uh, Scott's question. Many apologists defend necessary being theology, where questions like, why is God a trinity, are inherently wrong since God has all his properties necessarily. Is this mm -hmm. helpful for us as Vantillians? Uh, to describe God as a necessary being? Um, okay. I mean, yes, it is helpful in a variety of ways, um, but we'd want to always be clear about what sort of necessity we're talking about. Um, the creation necessarily needs the Trinity not only for its existence, but its intelligibility, and therefore the Trinity is necessary to the creation. But we'd want to make sure we were never attempting to say that there's some supervening necessity outside of or beyond God explaining why he is the way he is. Even when we talk about the one many problem, we're, we're not starting with the problem and going, oh, you know, God necessarily must be triune or something like that. We're actually starting with the revelation that God is triune and we're seeing the whole problem through the lens of that truth in that reality. Right. And so the only necessity that we would ever want to ascribe to God and to his attributes um, is a necessity that, is God himself. God is who he is. He is what he is. Um, the minute we start looking for a, necess a necessity outside of that, which is the sort of thing you really get when Leibniz is talking about, um, you know, uh, God creating the greatest of all possible worlds, sure. there's an objective necessity outside of and beyond God that, that is just like reason itself. Hmm that is uh, requiring God to create the way that he does. Almost like there's this mansion and God is inside of it. And there's like an infinite number of rooms and there's the best room. And why wouldn't God go into that room? I mean, you'd have to go into that room. Um, it, it, that's not the sort of necessity we could ever, uh, we could ever um, credit to a, a self-contained God. He would be an other contained God in that sure. context. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Scott, for your question. And thank you for your super chat. Um, uh, Chris uh, says, I've asked Dr. Bosterman about this before. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's asked before, uh, but it might be helpful for some, uh, for him to explain is of identity versus is of predication with regards to the Trinity. Okay. So there's a sort of is that, you know, we would, uh, 
predicate to an individual where we only predicate of them uh, their name. So, you know, uh, I am Brant. Um, that's a, a rather unique uh, thing to predicate. There's only one Brant, or at least uh, um, <laughs> Brant as I'm using it non-equivocally, that can apply um, to that particular I. And um, that's the sort of I, I, uh, is of identity there. Mm. Um, something being the special, unique sort of thing that only it is. Um, then there's, you know, the is of, um, uh, where is it? Uh, of a, it, predicating a category to something. And this is where the one many problem arises. You know, what are those categories? It's, it's, it goes back to, you know, uh, me, you know, calling Eli a man. Um, there, Eli and I share something in common. And uh, the reason why we can predicate that of the both of us is that there is a, um, uh, it, well, it's an abstraction. Man sheds many of the details of Eli. You know, you look at the two of us here, um, we could list all sorts of things from slightly different skin tones to being different heights to you name it. And man doesn't contain any of those things as a, a category or um, as a class. And so let me, I'm reading the question again. So um, the, the unique thing about when we talk about God is, is this, the three persons of the Trinity are all that God is. Uh, they are the whole divine being. They have all of the divine attributes exhausted and fully expressed in themselves. Mm. Um, and yet they are three persons, uh, co-eternal in relationship with one another and here's the thing. There's nothing else like that in all of reality round about us. The, the Trinity is absolutely unique in that respect. So God is God and the Son is God in a wonderfully different way um, than I am a man and Eli is a man. Sure. Um, we don't absolutely exhaust humanity. Neither one of us does. But each person of the Trinity does. And this speaks to the fact, again, that God is not reliant on anything outside of himself to be himself. It's not as though the three persons of the Trinity came together and, and made a God who is one between them as a sort of a you know, group or agreement. That would make God himself kind of a chance product, and chance would be bigger than God. Sure. Nor are the three persons of the Trinity, um, God, you know, what happened after God did divided himself or rarefied himself into, you know, more and less concentrated portions of deity. Once again, that we would have a situation where God is evidently contained by something space. I don't know where he could parcel himself out into other things and something impersonal would be ultimate. Rather, the personal God contains himself, comprehends himself, is himself perfectly and absolutely mm. um, in a diversity of persons, unlike anything else. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Viet, I think it's Viet Mai, uh, says, Dr. Bosterman, in your Trinity book, you mentioned that two persons in the Trinity relate to each other in the personal context of the other person. Could you help me understand what you mean by personal context? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just relationships. Uh, relationships are somewhere in, in the persons of the Trinity are uh, they have relations with one another. And those cannot be happening uh, somewhere that's impersonal. Or again, we'd have an ultimate rea reality that was impersonal that 
no mind fully comprehends. And so it's vital importance that, you know, the son can say, I am in the father and the father is in me. And if we try to consider where and how the father relate to one another, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration where they're, uh, you know, at least the voice of the father and, and the son are engulfed in the glory cloud, you know, or frequently associated with the spirit of God. Um, that is where the persons are. Uh, they, their relationships are. And that which makes their relationships possible is not a reality outside of God. I mean, going back to Aristotle, if you say that the fundamental element under which everything yeah, that resides under everything is, is ultimately unknowable and indefinable, definable, except in the way that Aristotle says, that, you know, it, it, it lacks um, any actuality in itself. It has to be supplied by forms that um, are imposed on it and exist in it. Um, how can Aristotle say what that matter can or cannot do? Is there any mind that knows that? Is there any mind that knows bare, uh, uh, hue uh, matter? And if no one knows, how can Aristotle be so certain about his entire metaphysical system that um, uh, that things might not get mucked up by this thing that he totally doesn't understand that's in everything? Sure. This, this is where the problem resides when we talk about having an impersonal ultimate. And, you know, in, in the case of the Trinity, the key is that, that the God's relationship to the world is facilitated by one of the three persons of the Trinity. And even his relationship to himself is uh, in the context of the three persons. Well, each, each person of the Trinity is always encapsulated within a fully comprehensive relational context with the other persons. So there is That's no, right. there in this, uh, in, in the one person being encapsulated by the conceptual relationship between, say, father, son, mm -hmm. to the spirit, and vice versa. There is no abstract impersonality. They are fully right. immersed. And it's kind of where well, you get into the doctrine of perichoresis or the interpenetration of the persons. Um, right. And, and, you know, the reason we're able to talk right now, Eli, mm -hmm. and we're able to, you know, have these listeners pay attention is because the context in which we're talking is not just space. It's not just time. It's not just our civil government. It's not just our linguistic system. None of those things can ultimately tell us with certainty that we're really making contact with one another. Sure. We live and move and have our being in the context of the Trinity who speaks to us everywhere. And the real reason we all have confidence that we can speak right now and arrive at interesting conclusions and you name it is because before we ever drew one conclusion about anything else, we have literally been in the atmosphere, and I don't want that to sound pantheistic, of God's revelation inviting us, assuring us, telling us that we're made in his image and that this world was made for us to be understood, that we're made to be understood by one another. And we've only been suppressing that all of our lives and um, not giving God thanks for it, as Romans 1 says. And we need to be, to be doing that. All right. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, the sire says, uh, what would you say about divine conceptualism? Do you hold to it? Do you think it's problematic? What are your thoughts on that? I'm not familiar with that phrase. Sorry, okay. Man. That's all right. No worries. You can write back and, and just tell me what you mean by that. Sure. Thank you for that. Uh, Wilder Adventures asks, what is a dog, if not the abstraction of the essence of dog from particular dogs? In your yeah. book, you mentioned that abstract thinking is sinful thinking. Yeah. Well, it, what we mean when we call that sinful thinking 
is suggesting that there is just this impersonal abstract dog somewhere in some form or fashion, or maybe just only ever embodied in particular dogs, but that is somehow holding it together as a dog and placing limitations on it as a dog. Uh, we're going to say as uh, Trinitarians that the only sense in which there is that that form is, is it, that the, the God who made these things uh, knew all things before he made them. He made them in a way that they would have uh, these resemblances and that that definition is the power of God working and operating in his creation. Um, and so in that sense, we're not engaging in abstract. I'm just reading your question, abstract sure. thinking and suggesting that an impersonal something is ultimately responsible for the dogness of dogs. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the personal God who, uh, imposes that on them. And of course, yes, for us, yeah, when we form an idea of dog, our, our idea is only true to the degree that it corresponds with, with God's idea of, of dog. And, and frankly, it never does absolutely, but it does truly. Mm. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Chris asks, could we argue that a Unitarian God wouldn't be able to ontically ground its own thoughts? I ask because some people try to say a uni God's thoughts could amount, uh, could account for the one and the many. Why? In other words, why, if I can reform the question, why doesn't a Unitarian God cut it? How does a Unitarian God undermine the preconditions of knowledge, intelligible experience, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, well, already when you talk about a Unitarian God and his thoughts, you have a multiplicity in that Unitarian God. Um, and so I would want to be asking, are those, are, is the Unitarian God's thoughts identical with himself? Or are they of something less than himself? Uh, is he thinking himself when he goes, you know, thinks about himself as God with reference to a platonic form of deity that he happens to instantiate? What is he thinking about himself with reference to? Because for, for us as Trinitarians, we have the eternal Logos, the eternal son of God. God, the father, knows himself in the face of the son. Um, so in that sense that you know with reference to which he knows himself is not less than himself it's not an abstraction of himself it isn't uh something that precedes himself it, it, and so that's what we're getting at when we talk about god being self-contained mm. when you're talking about a unitarian deity who does not have a living personal son uh, as the you know the, the reference point or as his logos what is his logos what is his wisdom is it something less than the personal God himself? And that's where we would point out that really Unitarian gods are, uh, you know, I mean, if, if we're talking about the deistic version of a Unitarian God or we're talking about uh, Plato's Demiorg, uh, those are definitely finite gods. <laughs> that's all they ever were supposed to be. They're in a universe that precedes themselves. Um, they aren't the absolute stuff that makes everything happen. Um, they're subject to a reality beyond the universe. The universe is eternal on those views. It's that's the universe right. that's more ultimate. It's this, this ultimate impersonal context in which these deities dwell. Right. And, the, and his, it, you know, the fact that we're talking about him having thoughts is the sort of negative uh, um, projection of man onto just a, a much more powerful being. Sure. Um, it, it lacks 
the revelational divinity of the doctrine of the Trinity, where we're being smacked upside the head with the sword of God who is radically different from us, but in the specific ways that undergird his aseity. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's what places uh, the Trinity in, in his, his knowledge in a different category. All right. Excellent. Jeff uh, Chavez asks, uh, how can we answer atheists who would say that those philosophers like Thales cannot be borrowing from the Christian worldview because Christianity came after him? Right. So as we discussed earlier, the Christian worldview uh, is a, is the name for that revelational worldview now in the present time that's been on earth from the very beginning. We talked about how the whole point of the problem of the one and the many is that things can develop over time and can be the same and yet differ in wonderful ways of an outgrowth of what they were originally. We talked about the knowledge a, a child has of their parents in infancy that you know grows seamlessly into what it will be when they become parents and understand their parents in an ever deeper way. So we're talking about Christianity and the Christian worldview uh, there's a sense in which that was the worldview of Adam. That's what we're claiming. And the fact that it has a Christian element at this point, of uh, specifically a savior, you know, dying for, you know, people's sins and things like that. Um, that's the solution to our plight of sin. But there are features of that worldview that were present from the beginning, namely the personalism, the man and, and the ethical personalism, you might say, man was never intended to live a day or to think one thought outside of submission to God, that's a core element of that worldview. Mm -hmm. And in fact, man can never erase his knowledge of God. And the reason why Thales goes looking for a one amidst the many is because he already knows that there is a unity that persists through this diversity. He already knows it. It's the same with Aristotle. He already knows that there must be uh, something which validates uh this intuition that I am made for the world and the world is made for me. But the mm. problem is because they don't submit their minds to God, like a person in a drunken condition, um, they always come up with answers which undermine their ultimate claims about themselves mm. rather than undergirds it. Very good. Awesome. You're doing an excellent job, man. I hope these these questions aren't too much of a curveball here. Here's no, I just keep trying to read them on my screen and it's really small. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure I read them to you very slowly and I'll read No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so here's a question. Uh, Presup has come to be used as kind of like a like a verb, right? You, if Presup is in a methodology, it's what you do to someone when you're, <laughs> when you're doing apologetics. So how, how would you Presup a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox uh, person? Uh, and you don't have to give us a full refutation of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, but just in general principles, what would be the procedure that a presuppositionalist could engage, say, a, someone who holds to like Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll just give some some generalities here. First off, you know, in a, in a Roman system, uh, a uh, the lack of finality in Revelation is uh, problematic when we talk about the one many problem. Um, the, the idea that God could speak with finality in his written word in a manner that would be sufficient to guide us in all the diverse circumstances that would come is exactly an expression of the sort of one many problem that we're talking about. We have a completed one in the way of revelation that is sufficient to guide us in all the many different circumstances 
that time will have until the end. That is what we would expect from the Trinitarian God um, who can have a, uh, again, sorry for bumping the table so much, no worries. one that is sufficient for the many. Romanism has, uh, you know, wedded as it is uh, in so many instances to uh, a Thomistic and back of it Aristotelian philosophy, uh, gives too much to the unknown. The reason why you need this, uh, you know, ex cathedra capacity, which births new doctrines like the Marian dogmas, is because there's no way to speak with finality into this world of diversity. Um, you're working too much with an unruly tendency of reality to slip into non-being, whatever that means in an Aristotelian sort of a system, that that's why they're, they're always needing more, more revelation. They, it, it's not sufficient in itself. So that's the first problem. The, the relative autonomy that it ascribes to mankind and salvation is an additional problem. Uh, every particular reality has back of it the sovereign preordination of God. Romanism wants for there to be an element of the autonomous in the very process of salvation itself. I mean, the most consequential things about reality. And in that respect, it allows that unruly something into reality that is just not compatible with a God who is absolutely sovereign, knows the end from the beginning just by knowing himself, and not because he's receiving anything from the creation, as you know, a moviegoer would watching a show, but because uh, he is the transcendent, transcendental source of the story itself. Those are the sorts of things that I would uh, be interested in discussing. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. I uh, just got a couple more here. Uh, so a uh, question. Um, RJ Rush Dooney wrote a book about the one and the many. I have both that. I've I have both that and Brandt's book, but oh, I haven't okay. to read either which is normally the case, right? We get a bunch of books and we'll be like, I just got your book last year. Haven't yeah. opened it up yet, but no, nah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I know how that goes. Sometimes you get caught up. It's hard to sit down and, and plow mm -hmm. through them. But um, are these books, yours and Rush Dooney's complementary in any way, or are, are they taking different approaches to the question? Well, they're definitely taking different approaches. I mean, they, I would say they're complementary. They're taking different approaches to the question. Rush Dooney is particularly interested in how the one of many issue comes to bear on, uh, you know, uh, the proper organization of the state relative citizens, which you wouldn't be surprised to hear if you know anything about Rush Dooney. Um, but it's one expression of the one many problem, and he doesn't neglect the metaphysical as aspect of it either. So I would say they're complementary. Um, I would say I, I tend to think that Rush Dooney's book on the one and the many is one of the better ones out there for um, explaining just how uh, how the problem comes to bear on so many different things. And uh, I, I'd say it's actually one of Rush Dooney's better books. Um, mm. it, it might be one of his best books. I see the thing is, okay, so I'm teaching an online, I teach an apologetics online class. Uh, okay. I, I call it Presup U. You know, it's just a, yeah. a, a course that outlines presuppositional apologetics. And I meet with the students and uh, you get people from all walks of life, people who are very sophisticated and know the ins and outs of this stuff and they want to go deeper. And then there are people who say, hey, I know I've heard about the one and the many. I've maybe read it somewhere in Van Til or something. But how would you unpack the concept of the one and the many to a person who is into apologetics but doesn't have kind of that deep 
background and philosophy. I mean, how can this idea, so for example, we say the Trinity accounts for unity and diversity. How can the everyday person defending their faith use this concept within an apologetics context? So if they're arguing along the lines of say, you know, the Christian worldview can account for knowledge. And then you get into a spat with the unbelievers like, well, wait a minute, but our doctrine of the Trinity is very important to this because yeah. how can they then explain it in the most simplest terms possible? And I know you're going to have to probably sacrifice some accuracy in doing yeah. so, but how would you, how would you speak to someone who who's asking questions along those lines? Man. Um, well, I, I probably would tell someone that you don't ever go up to the unbeliever and tell them that the Trinity <laughs> solves the said. one and the many problems. <laughs> that you know, <laughs> I've never done that. If if that's what you're wondering, um, <laughs> if if you're asking me like, how do we you know make relevant these sorts of of, of matters? You know, uh, you know. If I, here's the thing. <laughs> Let me think how to put this. <laughs> To go full presuppositional on someone is when is is most useful when you're dealing with someone who is uh, just the most supreme skeptic at anything you might say. Sure. Okay. You know, the way I found presuppositionalism, the way I ended up at it is I, I have a big brother who left the faith when he was 18, I was 17, and yeah. I would I would try to evangelize him all of the time, and I would. For years and years and years, do the evidence that commands de demands a verdict and all of the sorts of uh, classical and evidentialist methods. And here's the thing: if you meet a hardened unbeliever, uh, it doesn't matter what evidence you show him; he's going to take that and he's going to toss it over his shoulder every single time right. and just discount it on the basis of a prior worldview. Presuppositionalism is really, really valuable when you're talking to that guy because they've never been critical of their own presuppositions. They've never thought, hey, I actually have to defend, like, if I'm going to say that the Bible uh, isn't true, I must have some conception of truth that I'm working with such that I'm denying it to the Bible. And what is that? And it's in that context that presuppositionalism is so valuable. So how might I, I use, uh, you know, some sort of one many argument with someone? Well, mm. you know, I might just in that context say to someone before I try to prove to you that what happened, in, you know, in the Bible or the Bible says happened in history. We just ask you something. How do you how do you suppose that you know any fact outside of yourself? Mm. And I, I would, you know proceed down this course of like, what could give you certainty that your rational faculties are actually reaching reality outside of yourself? Because the only thing you could ever do, like if you were to study yourself, you'd be still using those rational faculties or to right. use a plantinga sort of phrase. How would you ever know that you were properly functioning? Like if you're not properly functioning, I mean, that's, and, and, and the answer would seem to be that only someone who resides outside of yourself and has a sovereign power to communicate to yourself in spite of your defects, only that sort of a being can actually provide you with the very sort of certainty that actually you're carrying on with every darn day. So confident, in fact, that you're going to turn around and tell me that the Bible can't be true because it doesn't meet the criteria of knowledge. And that's how sure you are that you do know things. 
Sure. And I would say that relation of you yourself as an individual to a, a, a reality full of multiplicity uh, can only, the idea that the two match, such different things match your unified experience in a world of multiplicity outside of yourself is by that of an absolute authority who doesn't suffer from the same problem that you do. That he knows himself and knows reality, not with the use of impersonal tools, not with the use of pure uh, rational forms, but his own relationship to reality and to himself is mediated through himself. And he's absolutely, that, that might be the sort of way in which I would go down that path with somebody um, to yeah. bring to bear a one many sort of a, a deal. Sorry, mm. that was a long answer, but no, no worries. Well, out of respect for time, I'm going to ask you one last question, and it's a greedy question that I want to ask. Uh, so I apologize if I if I skipped over anyone's questions. I, I did want to kind of move along here. We're already at an hour and forty four minutes, and and Dr. Bosserman has been so generous with his time, um, and so um, this is going to be the last question. Okay, so I have heard folks say that presuppositionalism doesn't work. The transcendental argument doesn't work. You don't need the Christian worldview uh, to ground knowledge because um, I have an argument from direct acquaintance. I can be directly acquainted with certain experiences that I have. This is un undeniable. And so I don't need to presuppose the truth of Christian theism. These are things that I know immediately. Um, and so it doesn't, you know, either transcendental argument, presuppositionalism uh, doesn't deliver on what it says it delivers, and I don't need it anyway. So how would you respond to an argument from direct acquaintance that we can be directly acquainted with things and cannot be wrong about it? So there you go. I don't need any Christian presuppositions. I don't need circularity in my arguing. I, I know these things. They're direct. I'm a directly acquainted with them. Okay. So a few things. Um, I, you know, what people are usually speaking about there, I mean, they probably don't know Johann Fichte. I mean, no one reads him anymore. Uh, that essentially, you know, uh, feelings and states of uh, states of feeling are things that, that are immediately known or more immediately known or, or things like that. Um, I would, first of all, ask them, you know, what they mean by no. Um, mm. A feeling is not knowledge. Um, if you give a name to that state or to that condition, and you even say that those states are alike, you know, even the way you're describing it, I have immediate knowledge of states. Um, what is the universality or the generality of those states? Uh, and and how can you how are you able to to predicate that thing to multiple things? You don't have an immediate knowledge of that. In fact, what that means is you don't have an immediate knowledge of those states. You have a mediated knowledge of those states, wherein you're you're applying a universal descriptor to that state, even as you're reflecting on it or knowing it or recalling it. Which you're not just telling me you're having an immediate state right now. You're remembering a state. And so, in fact, every time you're having a state, you're, you're remembering a state um, of, of feeling uh, slightly thereafter, at least in terms of your cognitive process. So to call that unmediated is a grave mistake. It is mediated. Mm. It's mediated even in that rational subjective realm in which you name it, speak of it, recall it, all of it. And then you ask yourself, how can you be certain that you had any of those states? Um, 
and, and again, we would answer the only being who could speak with authority is that being who resides outside of you, who knows himself and knows all things by himself. And that's why we'd say you have to know the God who knows everything to know anything. And these more immediate states are themselves uh, immediately bearing witness to the God who made you, the God who created you. So when someone says, I am currently having a sensation of pain, mm -hmm. that statement is in the past. I just mm -hmm. said it. Yeah. But isn't it the case that even the statements in the, in the past, I'm still experiencing the pain immediately? No, you're experiencing it through time. You're experiencing mm -hmm. that through space. You're experiencing that through the very names and language that you can ascribe to it. Mm. You're experiencing that with reference to a multitude of other things. In fact, when you speak of a, 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 I'm immediately experiencing pain, that right there has a reference to what you're not experiencing, evidently pleasure. You know, there's a whole cognitive world mm. that that's, that's married to. And this is what we talk about when we talk about, you know, description and definition themselves requiring multiplicity. And so you're still in a, in a place of, of saying, you know, uh, how do you unify the one and the many? I mean, the Hume is ready to contemplate that well, he, he would say that there's surely no proof that your cognitive state is one unified solar being who's, who could say that you weren't like a string of, uh, chasing Christmas lights going on and off, it, your consciousness itself being totally discontinuous with prior states of being. So even when you say, I am experiencing pain, you're already referring to a one in many, uh, an I that, that maintains unity through a, a diversity of things. Mm. And again, you would say, uh, yeah, what can facilitate that? You know, what can facilitate this unity through diversity? And the answer is nothing in creation suffices. And the answer is that, um, again, uh, that's why everything bears witness to the God who's an absolute one in many and can uh, and has made a created one in many to bear witness to him. Mm. That was an excellent answer. <laughs> Once again, folks, I am speaking with Dr. Brant Fosterman, the author of The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, an interpretation and refinement of the theological apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Brant, I'm not going to call you Brant. I'm going I'm to break the formalities all the way at the end here and say um, I greatly appreciate you giving me one hour and in just a couple of seconds, 50 minutes of your time. Um, there are some excellent comments here. People are really enjoying and finding what you have to say. Uh, very, very useful. Again, um, it's pretty deep stuff, but a lot of the people who watch the channel are kind of, they already kind of have some background on this topic. So you're just adding some, you know, whipped cream and sprinkles mm -hmm. and cherries on top for them to kind of, oh, okay, I made that connection mm -hmm. there. That was super helpful. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and every question that I'm asking actually has a context from stuff I've heard before that other people who are critical of presuppositionalism and, and how we use this kind of, uh, argumentation and reasoning, they've asked these questions. So I, I asked them so as to be helpful to yeah. our side of the fence that are saying, yeah, how would I respond to that? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, maybe next time I'll get through the other seven pre-Socratics that I was going to talk about, because, you know, here's the thing. I mean, I feel like, and I appreciate all these questions, but I yeah. feel like presuppositionalists 
need to spend more time doing exactly the work of saying, you know, Van Til can say all day long, uh, unbelieving philosophies inevitably bear witness to the truth. They just need mm. to be turned right side up. And we can repeat that as presuppositionalists all we want. But I would actually say that to those who are so interested in presuppositional apologetics, we actually just need to do that more sure. often. We yeah. actually need to spend more time looking at, at a philosopher, not just go, he has the wrong, you know, self-defeating, you know, mm. uh, presuppositions. Yeah, yeah. Don't, get, don't get me wrong. I'm happy to go there. But that's, that's only half the story. And, and in some ways, it's kind of like just the, the most depressing half of the story, just that like they're wrong. There has to be something in every, you know, distinct idea that bears witness to the truth. Mm. And I, let me just put it this way. Uh, you're going to have a lot more fun reading philosophy, engaging with people. If you've thought hard about their world, you're going to be much more engaging. Sure. There's a sort of presuppositionalism that is just, it's so quick to get to the punch Yeah. <laughs> that, that, um, uh, Almost every other virtue that you could bring to the table that might be winsome has gone out the window. <laughs> hey, I need to stop you. I need to stop you right there. Yeah. What you just you you just struck a chord. Like this is this is very important because we go straight to the punch. A lot of presuppositionalists, especially online, are seen as disingenuous. It's like yeah. you don't really want to kind of hear me unpack right. my view. You just right. wanna you just wanna get to the point where you can yell by what standard, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think what you said is vitally important. If if you'd be okay with it, how about I have you on again in the near future where you can just walk through the pre-Socratics in detail? As a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, there was a comment here uh, where someone says, uh, so when is the series on the pre-Socratics coming? So people are interested. So if you want to come back on in the future, we can set it up. I would love to just sit here and listen to you walk through the pre-Socratics in more detail. We can kind of give a quick little intro that you've spoken about it partially here and then just walk through as, as much as you think would be useful for presuppositionalists to kind of uh, listen to and 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 benefit from. Does that sound okay? Yeah, I think we can do something like that. And I'll say to that questioner, uh, the rest of the series is at Northwest University when they let me adjunct teach uh, history of philosophy, ancient uh, session one. But uh, but I, I do want to continue on just with this sure. practical yeah, yeah, admonition absolutely. to guys. Um, there's a difference between always talking about something and uh, and actually doing that something. And again, there's a sort of just always talking about presuppositionalism that um, in the quickest way to get there and the simplest way to get there, and, and honestly, the most monotonous imaginable way to get there. And you always, you know, get to the, the punch and the point that in a way... <laughs> we're actually, you know, reflecting um, this sort of just like painful monotony that uh, the whole concept of the Trinity and the fact that we can have unity in history means to undermine. And so I just, I would compel guys to go, to be practitioners of this in their reading of difficult ideas, difficult philosophies, and, and, and working through, you know, again, exactly what it is that, uh, has potentially much value when turned right side up in an unbelieving 
uh, worldview or form uh, form of thought. Really, that's the sort of thing I had to do in writing my thesis. Um, and certain philosophers are going to resonate with you more than others. To say that Hegel res re resonates with me more than uh, most modern analytic philosophers would be a bit of an understatement. It's not to say that there's nothing valuable uh, in those in those guys. The fact is, I I'm not as well read in terms of 20th century analytic philosophers as I am of British I, American idealists sure. and uh, you know post uh, you know Kantian German philosophy. But that engagement, I would say, is actually what kind of strengthens my uh, appreciation for presuppositionalism. Whereas if you're just always only looking at the transcendental argument and you're not actually ever seeing these philosophies that at once bear witness to the truth and um, are sown with the seeds of self-defeat. Um, I guess I'm just saying that that it, it might actually undermine the whole project. And when I meet guys who like knew the transcendental argument and employed it and now aren't believers, um, yeah, I, I, I do often think, you know, did you, were you ever really eating and living and breathing a Christian worldview that, that really does see God's revelation everywhere, even in spite of themselves in unbelieving thought? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I had a friend, uh, well, I have a friend, I haven't, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but uh, Pastor Bill Shishko was an OPC pastor um, on Long Island where I used to live. I'm in North Carolina now, and he was a, he was a mentor of mine. Uh, I kind of bragged to folks. He knew Van Til personally and knew Dr. Bonson, and I, I was able to, every, every time I'd go to his office, I'd leave his office with like a box of books. He'd always give me books, and mm. I was able to con him out of a, a Van Til autographed copy of Defense of the Faith. Nice. Um, and so, but I used to have these great conversations with him and it's kind of, kind of, uh, made me think about it based upon what you said, are we living in a Christian worldview and, and seeing mm -hmm. the world through that lens As I asked, I asked my friend, pastor Shishko, you know, what kind of person was Van Til? Um, and I thought he was going to give me this huge intellectual, like, well, you know, he's this deep philosophical, he, he stopped for a second. He paused and really thought about it. And he says, you know. Van Til, if I can describe him in this phrase, I would describe Van Til as a child living in his father's world. Absolutely. And just in a very basic sense, yes, he was a very intelligent man, but all of you get past all of the, the difficult language that Van Til used is right. You get, you get past that and, and simplify him. He just sought to live in a world where he believed what his father said. It's yeah. like he, he read his Bible. He believed it. And all That's that right. philosophical jargon and all that language was just his way of communicating what, you know, what he believed about God and the scriptures mm -hmm. to the world of the philosophers and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That simple core. I think you, it touches right on the, the aspect of, are we just arguing about this stuff or are we living in a world that is just trusting God in, in, in everything that we do? And I think well, you're nailing brilliant. it, man. And yeah. I'll just say, you know, to those interested in defending the faith, man, do not engage in that business if you are not faithfully defending your own faith by worshiping the Lord every Lord's Day, being under the actual formal leadership of a church, um, being in, in, in relationship with other believers where, frankly, the church has a 
unity and diversity that no other community on planet Earth has, period. Period. No other community on, on the entire planet. Go live it. Go be a part of it. Don't just sit in your college dorm room and, you know, talk about these ideas because the, the, me the mechanisms and the modes of defending our faith as something vital that the Lord has given to us are the means of grace. And I just, you know, it just, it, it, it just destroys me when I encounter people who love presuppositionalism but have no manifest love for the church. You know, it's interesting, you know, First John you know, 3 says that the difference between uh, the church and the world with our brotherly love, which what is that but a unity in diversity, um, is manifest. It's manifest. It's not clear to the world because as we've discussed, there's a drunken perspective there. They don't see it. Right. But it is clear to us if we're regenerate and in Christ that we can see in the church a real brotherly love and unity and in, indifference in, in that the world lacks a genuine love for one another. Yeah. And when people, you know, again, I just like that's that's our bread and butter. That's the reality of it. We're, we're, we're trying to get people there in that, you know, living organism of the church that is, again, utterly unique in all mm. of creation. And, and, and if you want to maintain a, a deep and rich and robust presuppositionalism, um, you're abandoning your presupposition every day so long as you neglect the church, you neglect um, that, that place where um, we're supposed to live and taste these things. Yeah, um, I... I have a brother um, who's trying to get back into the things of the Lord, and and he uh, he tells me every now and then he's like, "Man, I'm reading my Bible, and you know, I was just really encouraged, and I want to live in the Word." And um, and I said, "So, you know, so how are you doing that? How you living? How you live in the Word?" He's like, "Well, I'm reading my Bible." I'm like, "Why are you reading your Bible? Because that's what I'm supposed to do." I'm like, how do you know that's what you're supposed to do? Because that's what the Bible says I should be in His Word. Oh, so so when the Bible mm -hmm. commands us to do something. We should obey it. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, the Bible also says that we should not forsake coming together with the saints. Yeah. How can you be living in the word when you're yeah. simply reading the word, but avoiding meeting with the saints? And so I had to encourage him. Yes, it's great that you're reading your Bible, but you need to get connected with a local body. And uh, he, oh. under he understood that because he was reading it. He wanted to kind of, you know, fill his mind with scripture and feel like he's going on the right track. But mm -hmm. really... We're disobedient to the Lord when we read the scriptures, but we're not actually obeying the scriptures. And Absolutely. the scriptures commands us to right. gather together. It's a very important feature of the- Submit of to those who rule over you. I mean, how are you ever going to engage in the process of church discipline with a brother right. when you actually have no church in Matthew 18? How are you ever actually going to maintain this unity and diversity that we're supposed to have as believers- you are living the life of a pure individual. You might as well be Democritus's Adam, just mm. this, you know, individual, you know, floating around about. That's not what we are. Yeah. That's never what we were. It wasn't what we were from the beginning. And so, no, I mean, I, this is one of those things where, you know, as presuppositionalists, what we have to understand is that our presupposition is a whole worldview and, and, and way of life to which we are committed. And again, <laughs> When people are just defending, you know, just Trinity, it, it just strikes that you're just defending an idea. Sure. Um, if it is not something where there's a real living submission to him 
in a context that is the most like him, which is the one body of the church that actually has spiritual are, are we living a life of ultimate oneness or manyness or are unity and plurality our lives the individual mm -hmm. believer saved by grace and living within the context of the many the multiple that make up the body right. we we are our christian life is a manifestation of unity and plurality as we reflect mm -hmm. the trinity in our relationship to god and to the broader body as well it has so much application it's an amazing uh amazing concept but Oh, oh man, this is good stuff, man. I, I I'm listening. I'm reading some of the comments here. People are really encouraged, uh, you know, uh, by your words here and, and, and look at this. I mean, you would think people wouldn't be interested. I'd love to see him back on finishing, going through the pre-Socratics. Mm -hmm. Uh, another one says, I love his pastoral heart. I think that's what drew me to you. When I first met you, you gave me some really encouraging, you know, pastoral encouragement. And I didn't expect it because my mind was, all right, we're going to be talking about this problem of the one and the many. And you mm -hmm. just were able to kind of draw these intellectual concepts to really the like life application. And so I very much appreciate that, brother. That This is awesome. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad to, to bring that to bear. And, uh, you know, I, I could come on and talk about how Presbyterianism is the, is the perfect expression of the one and the many. And church government I could <laughs> <laughs> all right all right slow down there brother slow down. Yeah, all right I'm just, just kidding. kidding right he's like right. But, but partially not <laughs> all right well this this was excellent uh thank you so much wilder such kind words there wilder says thank you eli and pastor brant both of you brothers have had a profound influence on my life uh, so mm. far well praise god we thank Amen. you so much I appreciate listeners and people who support. Um, and um, I love doing this because I, I know uh, I started doing this sort of stuff because I remember when I had questions about theology, apologetics and practical stuff, I would call people and I would have these like awesome conversations. I'm like, man, like this would be so cool if I kind of like recorded these conversations and other people can listen. And, and you know, hopefully the questions I'm asking, other people are asking. And it just so happens to be that that's the case. And so I hope this content is beneficial and useful and edifying to people. And um, I just appreciate uh, everyone's support. Thank you so much. And and thank you, Pastor uh, Bosterman, for coming on, man. I, I really appreciate it. This was excellent. Maybe uh, close with prayer? Absolutely. Let's close with prayer. Would you like to lead? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. All right. Mighty God, I just thank you so much for the privilege that uh, we have here to discuss these things at a distance on opposite sides of the country. Lord, here we are experiencing just some of the wonders of the unity that we have um, over distance and the, the fact that such a diverse group of people are listening and God, we're all meditating on one truth and leaving with slightly different impressions of it and our, our own directions that we want to go with it. And, and yet at the same time, we're all, all knowing you, Lord God, as our Savior and our King. And I pray uh, for the many who are listening that, um, Lord, that they would have a deep and genuine love for you as their ultimate. Lord, a sort of love for you and a sort of uh, devotion to you and trust in you that persists through times or frankly, they just don't see it. They don't see the they don't see the solvency of the transcendental argument. They don't even understand uh, maybe something that in the past they understood better, whether it be because of the troubles of life or whether it be because of um, just the practical burdens that they bear. Lord, I pray that you'd be our presupposition then 
uh, just as well as when we, we feel like things were articulated so well. And I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish greater things from this conversation than um, what I intended or what I was capable of. Um, Lord, you, you teach us in the Lord's Supper that you, you didn't just come to inform us, but to touch us and to change us and to operate on us supernaturally. And Lord, I pray for um, the many who are listening, that they would go out uh, praying for that same supernatural generation, regeneration to come about in whoever they might be witnessing to or doing apologetics with. And Lord God, we pray that your mighty hand would keep us. In Jesus' name we pray by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that, brother. Well, that concludes our uh, our episode here, guys. It's a long one. Look at that. Uh, let's let's go to the questions so we don't go too much over. We, we <laughs> hey, it, it's all right. It's been so much fun, man. Um, well, that's it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening in. And uh, if you like the content, be sure to share it um, and press the little like button. Subscribe if 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 you uh, want to get future notifications. I think I I may be having Dr. James White back on to uh, kind of give a little debriefing on his um, debate with um, Tim Stratton on the 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 question of whether Molinism is biblical. Um, and so um, if I get that nailed in, I'll, I'll let you guys know and, and post it on um, Facebook and YouTube. But um, until next time, that's all for for tonight. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.